Back to Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to go tonight. I promise we'll, we'll eventually get out of Luke chapter 9. I don't want to miss, I don't want to skip something. And the more we get into it, it seems like uh, the more we can find in this, this chapter is a long chapter. It's, it's 62 verses to begin with, but there's a lot happening. If you'll look back over what we've talked about here. In chapter 9, he sends out the 12. Um, Herod seeks to see Jesus feeding the 5,000. Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. He tells everyone to take up his cross and follow him. He's transfigured on the mountain. They come down the mountain and the boy is healed. And then um, he again predicts his death. And that brings us to where we're at tonight. Let's all stand together. Luke 9, 46 is where we're, we're going to look at this passage tonight. Luke 9, 46. I'm actually going to jump back to 43 because I think it, it's going to help us to get a little more of the context. And they were all amazed at the majesty. Can we all say majesty? majesty. They were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled, at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Then a dispute, everyone say dispute. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child, everyone say child, child. took a little child and set him by him. And he said to them, whoever receives, can we say receives? Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you, all will be great. You may be seated. So I want to take a, a moment and talk about those three things that you said. We, we talked about a dispute, we talked about a little child, and we talked about receiving. And I want to talk about those tonight. First, we see this question that comes up, and we can really see that they did not get what Jesus said. Let this sink down into your ears. I am going to be betrayed. You can look at that two ways. I'm about to be betrayed, pumpkin men. I'm going to. I'm about to be. But also, we know from other passages that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. I am going to be betrayed. I'm on my way. I'm choosing to go to be Betrayed. Let that sink into your ears for a second. That's hard to think about, isn't it? I'm about to be, but yes, he chose to go. He chose to go to Jerusalem, and he knew it was going to happen, how it was going to happen. I don't even like going to the dentist. I don't even like choosing to go. It feels like a betrayal, you know. I trusted you with that little silver metal hook thing. You hurt me last time. I don't. But Jesus chose knowing he was going to be, he was going to be tortured by about the worst 
torture a human body can go through in this life. The Romans were professional terrorists. Do you understand that? Terrorists operate by fear. Power comes from their fear. And the cross was just a symbol. ISIS used that. They would put, when we, we, we read in articles, they put the heads of children on posts to let people know how ruthless they were. Rome would hang people on a tree after they were tortured. That was their method of terrorism. It was shameful. It was painful. And Jesus set his face to that. So this whole situation starts off with Jesus telling them, let this sink in, I'm going to be betrayed. And then they begin to argue about which one of them would be the greatest. Who's going to be the best? They still didn't quite understand the kingdom of God. They didn't still quite, maybe they were thinking that Jesus was going to be this earthly ruler and who was going to have the best position in his court. Maybe they were arguing over that. You know, well, Peter, he's kind of the leader. Yeah, but Jesus trusted Judas with the money, so it might be Judas. Who is it going to be? I don't know. It's definitely not. John, he's the youngest. I mean, you can imagine their conversation going back and forth. And here they are, they're arguing. But it wasn't just the arguing. It says, and Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart. Perceiving the thought of their hearts. So let's talk about a dispute. Where do disputes come from in the body of Christ? Amongst Jesus' followers. We have the answer in the book of James. If you'd flip back to the book of James, chapter 4. Listen to him ask the question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You can look at that two different ways. Your desires that war inside of you, that you must battle inside of you, but also that battle inside of your churches, amongst your people. It says, verse 2, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss or with wrong motives that you may Spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The one thing I pulled from the conference, the evangelism conference that I went to, was um, we had this one speaker and he, he, he spoke of our motivations. And that's kind of a hard thing to define. What motivates us? What causes bias and conflict? And he said it rules down and it really boils down to three different things. And you can take all these different things that people fight about and they will fall into one of these three categories. And it was pretty interesting, so I, I made a note of it. He said the first category he wants to talk about is greed. And there's all kinds of greed. Money. Yeah, all kinds of greed. 
The second one is lust. There's all kinds of lust. And the third one is power. The pursuit of power. It all comes back to that. Now, if you think about what the world has to offer, that is its trinity, isn't it? What does the world have to offer? Stuff. Greed. Lust. Power. That is what the world has to offer. Now, when you're doing things and that gets worked into your motivations, it's going to cause conflict in the body of Christ. It's going to cause conflict. What is the antidote of conflict? I think it's the opposite of those three things. So what do you take when you take the opposite of greed? What's the opposite of greed? Somebody help me out. That's one of them, but it's for another thing. Okay, sharing. So generosity. Generosity. The opposite of greed would be generosity. Sharing. But it talks about, and we, we keep going back to that passage in Philippians. You know, let that attitude that was on Christ be in of you. He considers others as more important than himself. And he was equal with God. So, first antidote for handling conflict a lot of times is generosity, and I put a slash, generosity and grace. Don't be greedy with grace. That's forgiveness. The second antidote, the opposite of lust, would be purity. 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 In your mind and in your heart. When you let, when you let your mind and your thoughts get tainted with things, conflict is going to arise. So purity would be a great way to combat lust. And it goes back to the same thing. Consider somebody else as more important than yourself. And then power. Our sister over here answered that one. The lust for power and wanting power is humility would be the antidote for that. You, what do you have to have to have a conflict? Two people that's willing to fight. If you don't have two people that's willing to fight, you don't have a conflict. Amen? And so the problem becomes that people's desire to fight, to have their way, when it overrides their humility, when it overrides their desire for peace, when it overrides their desire of being generous and gracious, and when it overrides, when it gets canceled out by impurity or lust. It's a bad situation. Where does conflict come from in the church? It comes, those three things, where do they come from within you? You carry that around. Um, oh, I was talking with, when I was visiting with Micah, her, or, or Michaela, her sister Micah, she is, works at the lab and she does uh, microscopic study of different bacteria and she's preventing bacteria from getting into that. And she talked about the fact that as we live and breathe, we have staph on our skin. We carry it with us. It's deadly. If we have a weakened immune system, it kill you. It'll, it will kill you, and we walk around with it. These three things is just like that. 
We carry our flesh around with us. We carry greed. We carry lust. And we carry this desire for power everywhere that we go. And so what does staff need to get into your body? Any opening and the moment that your immune system gets low. If your spiritual immune system gets low, one of those things is going to set up. And it's going to start warring against you. Do you know what your weaknesses are? Have you been honest enough with yourself in your prayer time to realize, man, I kind of fail more in this category than any other categories. When Satan tempts you, he knows what to use, but do you know that he knows what to use? That's kind of what I'm getting at. You can use that to your advantage. In the Super Bowl, we're going to have two teams, and they're going to be playing against each other, and they've been studying the videotape of each other. They've been, stud- they've been watching what they do. They study their strengths, and they study the opposing team's weaknesses. They want to exploit those weaknesses. Guess what else they study? Their own weaknesses, how they can correct those things, because they know that the other team is doing the exact same thing. They're doing the exact same thing. Are we doing that? We need to do that. We don't want conflict in the church. We don't want disputes. Definitely don't want to be arguing who's going to be the greatest. Because Jesus comes in there, and I like to think that maybe they were throwing age in there as part of their argument of who would be the greatest. Well, this one's the oldest. This one has been following longest. Well, Jesus kind of throws that on its head. Point number two, little child. A little child. What does he do? He says this. Jesus, perceiving the thoughts of their heart, took a little child. The Greek word there is technon. We're not talking. We're talking little one. Let's think of gray. Well, gray crow for a little bit. All right? I like this picture that. He takes that little child. Jesus pulls it close. And he says this. Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. I want to expound on this a little bit, so let's turn over to Mark 10. Mark 10 is given a similar, I don't know if it's exactly the same situation, but Jesus is talking about little children here as well. And it's Mark 10... 13 through 16. Then they brought little children, that same word is used, little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Why would they, why would they do that? Little children in, the, in, in biblical times, they, they really didn't do a whole lot. They weren't viewed as worth the same. What are they going to do for you? If you bring in the Pharisee, if you bring in the leader, if you bring in the landowner and Jesus heals them, well, that means something because they can give something back. But what's something a little child's not going to be able to do? When you help them, when you bless them, what are they going to be able to do? They're not going to be able to give anything back. So the disciples were brushing them aside. Let's get to the important people. What does Jesus do? 10, 13. 
the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But Jesus saw it. He was greatly displeased. I want you all to see that. He was greatly displeased. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Think about that for a second. What does it mean when he says, if we do not, if we do not come to him, if we do not receive the kingdom of God as a little child? I've thought about this. I've talked about this with a few people the past few days. A little child, a child is dependent. They're completely dependent on the one that's taking care of them. A little child is trusting. And a child will continue trusting until life happens and they're given a reason not to. Am I right? And it's a sad thing when that, when that happens. I've told you all the story. Case used to jump off anything. I, I could have my back turned and he'd be like, Dad, and I'd just catch a glance and he'd be jumping and I'd have to run and catch him. And he'd just laugh, not knowing the danger because Dad was going to be there. Well, I'll tell you what, you drop him one time. I'll never forget that. And he climbed up on, we had a half wall. He climbed up on that half wall. He goes, Dad, here. Oh, never mind. He climbed down and I was like, oh, that's all it takes sometimes. Guess who's not ever going to drop you? Jesus has never dropped you. God has never dropped you. He's never given you a reason not to trust him. But still as adults, we have been burned in life, haven't we? Other people have given us reason not to trust them, and we project that onto God somehow, thinking that he's going to be like them. Maybe he's going to be like our earthly father who had these shortcomings. Maybe he's going to be like these other people who had these shortcomings. When you project that on God, you're doing him a great disservice. He ain't never done that to you. So we had to enter as a little child. We've got to be fully dependent upon him, fully trusting in him. What else will a child do? This will get on your nerves sometimes. They will follow you. They'll, they're responsible for the backs falling off your shoes, aren't they? I can't hardly handle walking through Walmart because, I mean, I'm getting the back of my feet kicked. But they're just following me close. And I'm happy that that they're doing that now because I ain't got much longer with Riley for she's too embarrassed to be seen with me. <laughs> that's coming. Now what's sad is that's some people with the Lord. They used to follow him close and now they've gotten what they think is mature. Just like you hear an adolescent or a teenager when they think they're mature and they don't need to be around mom or dad. And what you're actually seeing is what? It's immaturity, isn't it? We think we're mature in Christ and we get kind of, we put our distance there. We don't need him as much, right? 
Church, that's immaturity. That's not maturity. That's immaturity. When you think, I don't got to go to church because of this. I don't need to go to this event because of this. I don't need to serve because of this. I've been there. I've done that. You are being an adolescent Christian. You are being a teenage Christian. And you're puffing yourself up. He says, be like a little child. Be fully dependent, fully relying on him, fully trusting in him, but also following him closely. We all need this. Then it says here, um, fully dependent, fully relying on him, following him closely. But a little child, and there's exceptions to the rules, but they'll be obedient. They'll do what you ask them to do. And a lot of times they're not asking why. Have you ever noticed that? Now there comes an age when it's just, why am I, why do I got to do that? Why do I got to do that? Why? I could... I wanted to do this as an example, but I thought it, it might follow the exception to the rule. I was going to ask an adult to come up here and do something completely ridiculous, and they're probably like, why? I don't, I don't necessarily want to. And ask, just pull any random child to come up here and do something completely ridiculous. They're not going to ask me why, they're just going to do it, and they're going to be happy about it. Isn't that something? What about when God asks you to do something that doesn't make sense to you? Maybe he's, maybe he's got a reason that you just can't see. We got to listen and do what he says. We need to be ready to do what he says, even if he asks us to do something ridiculous, what you think is ridiculous. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, the last point, is receiving a little child in his name. Jesus says, whoever receives a little child in my name receives me. Think about that for a second. What did he say in another place? That which you have done to the least of these, my brethren, you've also done to me. We have the least of these here. Our bus and our van goes and picks, picks them up. We bring them here. I was in a church before in a business meeting. People were looking at the cost of gasoline and they said why are we bringing all of these kids here and feeding them when they don't even tithe that was actually said sometimes more times it's not ever said but people think it I'm only spending this on we only got so much time do you realize how wicked this world is and how Satan has used so much and how the window of opportunity with reaching people with the gospel is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking? The world is active. It's crazy. Atheists evangelize stronger than Christians nowadays. And they don't believe in anything. But they, they want you to believe in nothing too. And they're willing to go tell you about how great it is to believe in nothing. And how when you die, nothing's going to happen and it's just nothing means anything. But they really want to tell you about how nothing means anything. Why is that happening? Because who's behind it? Satan. Islam. Wow. Those people are motivated. What's behind it? Mormonism. Wow. Jehovah's Witness. Wow. You want to talk about 
What is it? What is going on where we see the apathy of the church to reach children and Satan is happy because he's taking every chance he can get. He is taking every chance he can get. And we have a window. I'm not going to throw the statistics out there, but I'm telling you, the ages from when I was in school, which wasn't too long ago, and from what, what it is now, that, that window of opportunity, it just, it just keeps shrinking down. Why? Because you want to know the biggest satanic evangelistic front that people are dealing with? The biggest push that's reaching out and grabbing kids. It's the phone. Yeah, where's mine at? Right here. Mine's turned off because Satan would use it to distract me in the service. This. This. When I was growing up, like, even in my house where there wasn't a whole lot of, of supervision going on, they was like, don't sit too close to the TV. And now we've developed headsets that stick your phone over your eyes. I mean, they, they really do to block out reality. And kids are, it's not just kids, but kids and young people. I mean, they're, uh, they're doing studies and they're like, man, we're depriving them of social interaction. It's having some serious negative consequences. But what I'm hearing is Satan has found a tool that he's using better than the church is using. Because we're not as active in receiving. I want to tell you something, though, special about Viola First Baptist Church. God has blessed us. He has given us a gift that some churches just wish. Talk to somebody today, and they were upset because their church is getting, it's just they're not doing anything to reach children, young people. They're upset, and I said, you've got every reason to be upset. We should be trying to reach all people. So, God has blessed us with this gift of life. You, want, you know how awesome it is to hear babies cry in church? If you want this preacher to get upset about a baby crying in church, you got the wrong guy. If you, want to get, if you want me to get upset because kids are fidgeting or they get loud and excited and maybe they're like, yay, when I ask how everybody's doing this morning, you got the wrong guy. You might want to start looking again because that is life. And when kids are excited to be in church, praise God. They could be bored out of their mind and not want to come, but these kids want to be here. God has given us a gift. And right now, we need help. Downstairs on Wednesday nights, they've got the boys in the group and they've got the girls in the group. And it's, what, I think it's first grade all the way up to sixth grade. That's hard to teach. That's hard to teach that. That's, I mean, we'd have to go back to... We have to go back to early, pre-1950 to find schools like that that would put all those kids in that age group and try to teach them something, try to train them something. That's, that's a tall order. Not only that, when you put, think about the GAs. That, Roxanne and Lisa have been teaching that class for a long time. and There's been a lot of good things happen. 
And that, that, that class is blowing up, having a hard time handling that many students. So what do we do? We need to start praying for workers in this harvest. God's answered the prayer because somebody was praying, Lord, send us kids. Praise God, he answered that prayer. Now we need to, Lord, help us provide the workers. Help us provide the workers. When you ask the same people to do more and more, what happens? You burn the candle at both ends. It's going to burn out. God does not intend it to be that way. We do not need to be that way. We need people to pray and ask God, what do you want me to do? And I'll do it. Even if it's something that just doesn't sound right to you, if he asks you to do it, you've got to do it. He's blessed us, church. So we need to pray for workers in the harvest. You know, just imagine... Just imagine if we didn't do that. Go back 15 years. That's as that's far as I can go back here, okay? 15 years. The little children that this congregation invested in then. Well, one of them's up there recording for us. And he comes down here and plays music. Another one's playing music. Uh, they're, they're serving the church. They're representing Jesus well. They're representing Jesus well. Can we just give God a hand clap of praise for that? And that is because of our faithfulness to be good stewards of the youth that God has given us. I believe with all my heart, if we don't handle this gift appropriately, they'll take it away. That would just hurt my heart. Because, I mean, I'd be glad that they were going somewhere, but it would hurt my heart that if we, we couldn't get it together and, and get these kids. Why is it so important? Because they need this. They need to hear the gospel so that they can be saved. They need to be trained to know what it says, just like Matthew 28. They need to be discipled. So training and discipleship going hand in hand. They need to eventually be sent as miniature missionaries where we send them school back home to their friend's house when they have friends over you know how many kids could be saved if we train up these young ones to say you're over my house we're going to church sunday morning you'd love it man you'd love it you've got to meet my teacher you've got to meet my teacher and the person that's helping my teacher you've got to meet them too Oh, it's so awesome. They look so happy to see us when we get there. Not like it is at other places where people act like we're just a whole bunch of trouble. When we go to church, people are there. They, 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 they really want to see us. And we're learning a bunch of stuff. I want to hear kids talk about that, don't you? And when you have an excitement about what's going on, it doesn't just affect the children it comes in to your homes. Just think about it. What can, it, what can, what can a little three-year-old do? They don't even know. They don't even... I'll tell you what they can do when they come to this church 
and we get and they get sent home with little crafts and coloring pages that says Jesus loves me. And when they when they fold their hands together at time to eat and the parent doesn't know what's going on because they've never prayed before. Why is this kid and here they are and they feel conviction from the Holy Spirit from a small the Bible says a little child. People get saved. Amen. So let's remember that. So tonight, there was a dispute that happened. They got to arguing who was the greatest, and Jesus had to shake that tree up. So he brought in a little child. When God's people fight against God's people, it comes from wrong motivations, and you cannot point a finger and say, yeah, that person, that person. Nope. Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against principality. We're wrestling against our own flesh. We all have it. So before you get too upset at, the, at your brother or your sister, remember that same nature is in you. Okay? Those three things were what? Greed, lust, and power. And the antidote was generosity and grace, purity and humility. When we talked about a little child. Jesus said we need to be like little children. We need to be dependent upon him, trusting in him. I, there was a time when Case would have jumped off a 20-foot ledge t- to me. He would scare me sometimes. We need to be trusting in Jesus like that. Follows closely and then is obedient even when they don't fully see what's going on or understand what's going on. And then we need to be the type of people who are ready to receive a little child in his name. And if Jesus was willing to serve and if Jesus stopped and paid attention to little children, when other people didn't think they were very important, we should take a note and realize that he, he did that. Don't hear me wrong. Little children are no more important than any other age group, than young adults, middle-aged, older. They're not, that's not what I'm saying. But they're not any less important either. They're not any less important. As a church, I believe we would be doing ourselves and our community a disservice if we weren't trying to reach as many as we could from every age group. Amen? So tonight, here's the invitation. Let's, um, Let's pray first and foremost. And I want to make sure I do this. If, if you're here and you don't know Jesus or you're just not sure of your salvation, God wants you to know. There's no question in my heart about that. And you can know. You can know. And I praise God for that. You can know if you're saved or not. Don't listen to somebody that tells you, well, you'll just struggle with that <laughs> till the day that you die. No, you'll never do anything. You'll never do anything of great faith with the Lord. Until you know, until you get that first. You need that foundation. You need to at least know that you're saved. And let God build upon that. If you're unsure of your salvation, get that right. If you have disregarded something that God has asked you to do, tonight can be the night that you pick that back up and say, Lord, I want to do what you've asked me to do. I want to do what you've asked me to do. Tonight, if God is calling you to step up and to serve in any way, do that.
If you're serving and you feel like God has, you're doing everything that God's called you to do, then please join me in praying for workers in the harvest. For workers in the harvest. And it's funny, Jesus doesn't ask them to pray for lost people because they're they're everywhere. I mean, we got lost people. We're, We're called for workers in the harvest.